Howdy. Welcome to another episode of Canon Calls. I'm your host, Jake McAtee, and this week I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Michael Allen, Dr. David Nelson, as the editors of a brand new companion to the theology of John Webster. At the time of his death, John Webster was widely hailed as one of the leading Christian theologians in the world. I've done a podcast on John Webster before. He continues to be someone who edifies every time I open one of his books or read one of his articles. I highly recommend jumping in somewhere, like a book the guys recommend his book, Holiness. It's a small little book, and I think it would offer you all that John Webster has to give. A book recommend from the canon shelf would be... Almost all the books from the Christian Heritage series, if you're not familiar, Canon is in the business of republishing Christian classics, giving them brand new covers, and adding a sort of introduction that helps you get into the shallow end of the work. Currently in the series, we have Calvin's Institutes, which would be an obvious recommendation. If you haven't read Calvin's Institutes, you need to yesterday. So you can find those at canonpress.com. Without further ado, meet Mike Allen and Dave Nelson. All right, now welcoming on special guests today, Michael Allen and Dave Nelson, who have just recently edited and helped uh, put together the companion to John Webster's theology. Thank you guys so much for coming on. Glad to be here. Yeah, thank you. I've actually done an episode on John Webster before. I'm a big fan of John Webster. In school, I had a really fantastic systematics prof who, you know, took me who didn't know what why systematics was important or anything else, and I came out like loving it. I, Michael, I've read several of your books and appreciated some of your essays before, so I'm super excited to do this. One thing I wanted to start with, and I was I couldn't remember where the quote came from, but so I believe. Dr. Webster died May 25th, 2016. The next day, Fred Sanders wrote, some of us will now have to break the habit of calling John Webster the greatest living theologian. In due course, we'll have to find a way to estimate where he ranks and how well he fits in among the great list of teachers who have doctored the church. Can you guys tell me a little bit just like how you guys came to know John Webster? Dave, I know you, he, you took him as a prof. How did you first encounter his works? And then and, and maybe, you know, did you ever meet him, Michael? Mike, you want to go first? Uh, sure. So I, uh, I read him as an undergraduate at Wheaton College. And then when he came to speak at a, a conference uh, there in spring of 2003 or four, we got to meet and spend a few hours talking. And uh, I uh, wound up not going as I'd planned to study overseas with him at Aberdeen, but he wound up being the external examiner for my thesis, uh, published it as one of the first couple volumes in a, a new monograph series with TNT Clark that he edited and asked me to join the editorial team working on IJST. And from a distance was a colleague at the journal and just a, a dear uh, friend and guide from overseas and read everything I wrote for the, I guess, the first 
10 or 11 years of, wow. of my writing career and would send me what he wrote and, and discuss through it and, uh, you know, in ways that were generous and kind and couldn't be expected was just a real blessing and encouragement and a help to me, both as a writer, as a teacher, and as a friend. That's awesome. Dave? Yeah, so uh, when I was at Beeson Divinity School uh, for seminary, uh, which is in Birmingham, Alabama, which is my hometown, I was the bookstore manager. And uh, during our long, uh, empty summer hours, I would go check out books of theology from the library. I kind of realized early on that I was drifting towards uh, an interest in theology. And I would just check out stacks of stuff. And uh, at some point, maybe during my third, late second or third year at Beeson, one of my buddies suggested that I read this piece that he had discovered. It was by someone he knew, John Webster. He had been in Oxford for a, a semester and had run into John and uh, took a class from him while he was there. And he found this little piece called Discovering Dogmatics that John wrote for this edited collection. And he said, hey, if you're into theology, you probably ought to read this. And uh, I read it and really just, it. I remember it was one of those scales falling off kind of moments where just the clarity and the passion and also a lot of details in John's own biography he grew up Methodist. I grew up Methodist. He was an English degree. I took an English degree. We kind of drifted into theology. So I really resonated with uh, what I saw there. Read a bunch of his other stuff when it was time for, for me to graduate and I was considering what to do. Um, I, I thought about pursuing a degree in theology. I actually reached out to John at his Oxford address, email address, not knowing that he had moved on to Aberdeen. And I never heard back from him. And I thought, well, that jerk, you know, I don't want to study with him if he's not going to reach out to me. But a few months, uh, maybe months later, almost a year after I sent that email, he sent finally sent a note to me and it had circled around to him. And he said, hey, sorry about this. I would love to talk to you about this. Why don't we meet at uh, AAR and, uh, and see what we can uh, find out about each other? And so we met uh, at AAR. He had been in Aberdeen at that point about a year. We agreed that a project uh, of mutual interest would be a good undertaking for us to do together. So he was interested still in Jungle, and I ended up writing on Jungle sacramental theology. And that was the topic, as kind of an unusual case. That was the topic that I had decided on from the very start and never changed it. So we uh, worked together there at Aberdeen for a few years. And then um, when I finished up and uh, was looking for work, I became his editor at, at Baker Publishing Group. So wow. kind of had a, wow. kind of had an unusual uh, trajectory with John where he for many years, we used to joke about this for many years. He was cracking the whip, trying to get me to finish my dissertation. And then I started cracking the, the whip, uh, trying to get his manuscripts. Nice. In for Baker. So. A standoff of sorts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Nice. Nice. Awesome. Can you guys tell tell me how the project came together? So tell me a little bit about the book, and then how did you two get wrapped in it as editors together? Is it just because you both contributed and you needed an editor, so it was another standoff situation? I, You know, it, it seems to me, if I recall correctly, that very early on after John passed away, 
Mike and I were in touch just about a variety of things, uh, about his legacy, about uh, manuscript materials that never were published and really never will see the light of day, and just about the next steps of scholarship on John's theology. We were aware at that point that there were some doctoral dissertations underway and a few articles here and there about John's work and legacy, um, but nothing uh, sort of substantial, nothing really substantive, nothing really comprehensive. And so it was Mike who, uh, you know, kind of threw out the idea at one point, maybe we should pull together, you know, a, a team of folks who knew John and knew his work really well to comment on different aspects of his contribution. And uh, it really became, I mean, Mike, I'd love to hear your thoughts as well. But for me, at least, I know that almost immediately it was like that. Hey, we definitely need to be doing that. And it became a real project of passion along the way. This is something we want to do well and find the right people because of the person the project is honoring. Yeah. And, and from the beginning, Dave and I, who worked together, in a range of other ways before and, and beyond this, uh, had already talked about some ways in which reception of, of Webster's thought was varied and its quality somewhat mixed. And so we envisioned something that would hopefully uh, help shape maybe a, a new iteration of engagement. A lot of folks would focus on this text or that book and fail to see wider context, and in so doing, actually misread this text or that book. And so we wanted to have a, an approach uh, right from the start in the companion that would try to do justice to the full range of his interests, his time periods, his different genres and styles of writing. Uh, we had some material thoughts, too, that there, there are a lot of notions of this radically disjunctive kind of sense of development that the Bardian Webster became the Thomistic John. And uh, that, that just doesn't make sense. And it's not as though there's no data points that align in any way with that. But we wanted to uh, involve contributors who would be able to have a, a more textured account of ways in which John was a human being and did grow and develop but he was also a, a pretty remarkably consistent figure in all sorts of ways, uh, some of which are imperceptible, again, if you only focus on this text or that book. Right. And uh, we were so delighted to see that so many others were eager to contribute and uh, were keen to provide that kind of patient study. And as Dave mentioned, there have already been dissertations. Yep. We've been involved as readers and just as, as you know, sympathetic voices to some of those working on them already, and we expect there will be more. And the hope would be this would be an early reference work, equipping a lot of those folks trying to, to push further and engaging his thought. Yeah, you know, as someone like him passes away and then, you know, we start to sort of collect the works and 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 have takes on his life you know you mentioned there's you know already you know kind of a a fight for the body of webster with with the bart or i'm curious this project i could understand it in a way where maybe you mike or maybe both of you to some extent it's like here's what we think is actually the right interpretation but what's somewhat impressive 
is you have a long list of characters here. Is something like, you know, I'm we're going to put our take on the life and works of Webster out there with several contributors. Is that a, that that seems like a difficult task? Is that you know, I, I yeah. assume all of them have their own thoughts or or, or to some extent. Do they you... do. It's it's not a monolithic project. Okay. Uh, Dave and I did not give folks a, <laughs> a missive or a task for each chapter. The no, company line. When we fo- when we suggested certain chapters and and requested that friends would contribute there, we had reason not just to involve them in a project on John, but in those specific spots. Uh, we did suggest to them a range of texts that we thought as editors would be pertinent. Okay. Again, getting at the idea that the one thing we want to ensure is that this is dealing with a range of both well-known and sometimes remarkably unexplored texts. Right. And that's true of anyone. That's certainly true of John. Some of his texts are among the most cited of recent theological works. Uh, some of his most interesting stuff until very recently has languished in you know journals where Dave and I feel like we're the only people talking about him at times. And uh, thankfully, I think contributors were keen to uh, to really take that task up and run with it. And it's not unified in every respect, to be sure, but it it does, I think, bespeak a, a pretty coherent and uh, agreeable kind of perspective. It's not overstating it, I don't think. Was it ever a question that that Fred was going to write the Trinity chapter? I don't think so. I think we, <laughs> we I think that was was going to be uh, the the one he would take from the start. You know, the only thing I would add to to Mike's comments from earlier. And I hope I, I want to be very careful with how I say this because I don't want it to come across as as condescending. But the one common denominator among our contributors is that they're all we're all we're all at least you know five or ten years and sometimes more in in the post um, PhD life of doing theological work in our various contexts. Mike made the comment a few moments ago that John was a human being. Um, he, he wasn't this branch on a genealogical tree connected to these people, but he was someone who was living and active and thinking in a theological existence. And what we wanted, we didn't, we didn't want to impose, hey, you have to read who he was and where he landed in just this way. But what we we did want to find were folks who were very sympathetic to the real life situation in which theology develops and unfolds. And so we were looking to avoid the kind of easy generalizations that tend to be made. And again, I, I don't want this to sound condescending because I've written a doctoral dissertation on a particular figure and I look back on it now and I go, well, I just kind of plug Eberhard Humboldt into this particular genealogical schema in this spot. And I probably missed a lot of things in doing so. So what we wanted for John is to say, yeah, well, maybe let's try to avoid this kind of, here's where he went to school and here's who he was reading. And he liked Bart a lot. We know that. And then he started reading Thomas and boom, you got your John Webster. And we knew that if we picked the right folks who were kind of well into their own theological careers and kind of knew what it was all about, we would get something a bit more nuanced. 
I'm delighted that we did. I think even though Mike is totally right that this is far from a uniform treatment of Webster's life and career and contribution, you, it's a very richly textured account. It's everyone showed up and gave a very sympathetic reading. Um, and, I, and I'm really, really pleased that that's what we were able to offer with this. I think okay. sympathetic's a great word. And I, I want to highlight that doesn't mean uncritical. Exactly. Um, this is not a full scale evaluation. This is a companion to his thought. But folks who are participating are not folks who are playing the work of hagiography or yeah. of somehow trying to have a school centered on Webster. So uh, one of my chapters, several other chapters are pointing out places where thought is underdeveloped or where uh, thought is inconsistent or where thought would need to be teased out further, uh, all sorts of different ways uh, in which, again, John was a human being. And uh, not only that, but also a sinner <laughs> being redeemed. And sure. uh, that there's a, there's a vibrant, sympathetic, but critical conversation going on, which he himself would have encouraged. Sure. And uh, just before he died, I, I published the first of several essays I've written on his thought and had opportunity to share it with him. And uh, first, he chuckled greatly at the thought of somebody writing a journal article about his own theological principles. Uh, but then I, I, I was so struck that uh, he leaned in, especially to places where I was reflecting on areas that would need to be pressed further or areas that were limitations. And uh, so I think uh, somewhere he is pleasantly laughing uh, and <laughs> chuckling with us about the sympathetic but critical posture. <laughs> And I don't know which came first in terms of you guys or, or Erdman's, Erdman's um, on the project, but I mean, what better way to sort of accomplish sort of the posture you guys are describing than people that actually knew him as well? You know, so I imagine that Hagia, the uh, even the ditches you've described are a lot easier when you don't know them. I imagine for Dave, that's, that's you know, not knowing Jungle you know, also probably contributed to that as well. It's just easy. It's just a figure you're reading. So what better, what better duo? Could you guys describe for us, you know, systematics is not biblical theology. It's also not historical theology proper. Could you tell us a little bit about Dr. Webster's craft? Yeah. I mean, there, there are a number of ways you could approach it. And I would say there, there are several hallmarks as to what systematics looks like. Uh, in Webster's style or approach. And, uh, you know, the first would be to highlight, as he often did repeatedly, school after school as he went to, uh, was that theology needed to have its principles and methods dictated by its own material, not by its university context. So you need a theological definition of what theology should be, of who its practitioners need to be, of what its goals or ends ought to be. Uh, and that oftentimes means reconceiving it or opposing alternative definitions that are on offer in different university contexts where theology is a science or theology is an activistic endeavor or theology is a self-expressive approach. Uh, so that'd be the first, this sort of emphasis on trying to have a theological definition of it. Uh, the second would be as part of that, spinning out of that, one element is 
uh, Webster's commitment to doing theology by reading closely and patiently uh, a whole spate of works from across the Christian tradition. And he was pretty insistent that there's no like single work and, and it's not as though you need to find this one and then that one, but you really need to immerse yourself in the textual world of classical Christian theology, and then it's more modern uh, forms of conversation. Uh, And so that'll take the form of his essays typically being extended conversations with Clement of Alexandria or Thomas Aquinas or John Owen uh, or Karl Barth, whoever it may be. That's just a a native mode of his thought, that kind of textual, almost rabbinic kind of approach. And then third, I would would just say John uh, really did uh, believe and attempt to practice and especially to commend uh, the idea that, of course, the most fundamental text in which theology is going to be focused on is Holy Scripture. Uh, He was a Protestant and Reformed theologian. And so there's a, you might say, a a great jealousy for Scripture's uh, centrality. Uh, most of his work commended that more than it at length explained that or demonstrated that. Uh, he died before a lot of the exegetical spade work could be worked out in print in the systematics. He died before his Ephesians commentary could be finished and published. But he he gave us small snippets of that, showing what a, a biblical reasoning looked like, and he commended it as loudly as anybody in uh, the theological marketplace. Uh, So those would be three things that I'd have. There are others, and Dave, maybe you'll want to add one or two, but those would be three elements that are crucial. Yeah, that's that's great, Mike. And the the only thing that I think I would maybe want to add to that, which seems to be sort of across the board, looking at his publications really from beginning to end, um, a, a theme that seems to stand out to me is that you know, in system, systematic theology is trying to think about, as they used to say, the whole body of divinity and how it hangs together. And John always stressed, he did this in his works, he did this in person. I remember numerous doctoral seminars and one-on-one conversations with John, both in Aberdeen while I was there as the student, and then later on as I was working with him on his own writings. He would always stress that when you make a decision over here, it might have entailments for a decision that you make down the road. That if you say this about Christology, then you might be saying this about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit or the doctrine of of the human person down here. And so having the forethought to wrestle with how the, the body of divinity, again, using that old analogy, how it unfolds. That's what systematic theology really is all about. And I, I remember that just really coming across so strongly in some of the doctoral seminars in particular that I had the privilege of taking with John leading them in Aberdeen, where we were always talking about, well, here, the, and I don't, I won't name any names or texts, but he would, you know. Give us a headline, Dave. Name names. No, no, no. I, <laughs> I'm not going to throw anyone under the bus. I won't do it. But, you know, he would look, we would be looking at something and we go, well, see, here's a problem here. You've got an exaggerated doctrine of justification. Yeah. And justification okay. has taken on this 
huge role in in the system, but then down the road that leads to an inability uh, to say something intelligible about sanctification that would would be an obvious. And I remember very vivid coming off in one seminar, just walking out going, "We'll see. That's what the problem is." Yeah. So it's that it's that sense of of getting a, a feel for how the whole to to switch analogies. Uh, how the whole architecture of theology fits together and how how all of the joists kind of hang together is really something that John was, I think, from the very start, that was an interest of his. Absolutely. That, I mean, that order, and, and it kind of goes to ordering, I assume, too, you know, where yeah. um, one of my questions here is, uh, you know, I'm very curious as to how you guys talked about ordering this companion, because it is a work of systematic theology, so I know that's important to you. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, uh, there were certain things that seemed to be areas where they needed to be dealt with early on. Uh, some of John's, uh, you might say, vocational kind of commitments. Okay. And then there are certain topics or themes where he was able to contribute uh, at least a set of contributions, uh, perhaps a, a book or at least a set of essays. There are other areas where, frankly, he just, he wasn't able to say much. Uh, He had thoughts. uh, Perhaps he'd even had developed thoughts, but he'd not got there yet. And so this isn't an attempt to be a full-scale sort of encyclopedia of Webster. It's a companion to the Webster that actually exists textually. So, you know, the first part addresses theological development and after a a biographical sketch by his lifelong friend, just about Ivor Davidson, uh, there are essays on his theological project, on his work on Jungle, his work on Bart, his work on the theology found in the university, and then his interaction exegetically with scripture. And then after that, it's just topics that he made significant literary theological contributions to. Uh, most major doctrines are there, but some are not there. He doesn't write overtly at great length, for instance, on pneumatology. Uh, he comments on it in brief sections of essays. One of his earliest essays in the 80s is on the identity of the Holy Spirit, but it hadn't been developed at length, so there's not an, a separate chapter on that. That largely shapes uh, the course of what's found in that largest second part of the volume, and uh, hopefully it serves as a guide so that if somebody's interested in what he says about church, uh, they're able to not just read Joe Mangina's helpful essay there, but also to see adjacent works that are going to to help texture and locate that, as Dave said, architecturally. Yeah. And uh, so hopefully that that serves as a useful guide and companion for the actual reading and studying of Webster's texts themselves. Absolutely. Now, theological theology is a very important phrase to Webster. If you guys were sort of thrown, you know, think of it like a festival, it's not really like... They're not necessarily there to see your band. They're just they're there to see everybody's band. So imagine if you have a crowd, you know, of, of Christians who might think like, oh, systematic guys, they're very suspicious fellows, you know, they're uh, God in a box type crowd. 
if your task for them was to sort of make them feel why theological theology is important, like what are the dangers that you're guarding when you say something like that? Or, or, you know, what do you, what would you unpack for them that doesn't just make them like groan throughout the crowd? Yeah, I'll take a stab at this and I'll, I'll tell a funny story before I get into it. And, uh, it, when, uh, we presented, I was part of the team that, uh, put together a festriff for John called Theological Theology. And uh, I flew over to uh, Scotland at the presentation. And he he took the, I remember this very vividly, he took the copy that we had from TMT Clark in his hands. And he kind of gave a double take. And he he muttered something like, like, oh, theological theology, here it is again. I should have copyrighted this. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and it was just this kind of it, I took it as this kind of, you know, almost a kind of funny way to say, well, you know, this is an article that I presented at Oxford a few years ago, but and entitled, you know, this published essay, and it's kind of taken on a life of its own. So whenever I talk about that idea of theological theology, I'd say it, you know, it, it's one of those things to take with a bit of a, a a grain of salt and a little disclaimer that this is something that we're receiving and kind of interpreting, you know, from, from John and from others as well, because yeah. John by no means was the one who invented the phrase theological theology or who sought to do theology in an explicitly theological key. Yep. So having said, having done that throat clearing, I guess the two things that I would say is I've always taken theological theology to be, in one instance, a kind of veiled critique about the way theology is often done, especially in institutional contexts, most notably the university, where sometimes um, theology is, it happens, a paper is presented, a book is published, and everything goes according to plan, except for God, is not the topic of discussion. So this topic or that topic or this concern, be it a sociological issue that the world is on fire about, or, you know, some something in the news or our politics more generally, or whatever, those become really and truly the topic of discussion instead of God. And at heart, what's going on with this idea of theological theology is a recovery of the sense that we theologians can actually and should actually talk about God. And that when we start at the other starting point, whatever it is, we end up saying usually anything but here is God. We end up talking about something else. That leads to the second point, which is a more material point. And that is, I don't think John or any of us who, you know, sort of think about theological theology as something of a a virtue in theological discourse. I don't think anyone uh, believes that theology shouldn't talk about all of those other issues. Theology should have something to say, for sure, about the politics of the day about social issues that the world is concerned with, about the human person and human identity, absolutely. But that theology gets to all of that by starting with God, that it, there's a material order 
in theological discourse that runs from God to all things in relation to God, the, the old Thomistic, right, and, and Protestant scholastic way of understanding what theology is all about. And that it goes back to that ordering question. It's we ground our statements about the human person and community, sociology, politics, and on and on and on in our in the, the the understanding that we have of God and about God's inner life and outer works. So that might not resonate with too many people if I said it that way at your, you know, at the festival. At the festival, yeah. That's that's essentially the the to my mind, the gist of it is it, theology can so easily become wrapped up in talking about anything else but God. And that the way theology does address these issues is actually to deal with them as theological problems and not as otherwise. Because the last thing the world needs is theologians becoming politicians and talking about things that are not in the area of expertise that they've been trained in and then masking that as theological. That's my thought. Yeah. The only other thing I'd add would be that that as part of that, you know, Dave's final essay in the companion points to what Webster's systematics was to look like. And the, the first volume, which was on method, uh, was titled Theology in the Presence of God. And I think that gets at an idea John would want to say, we are all quick to forget that God is at the festival, as it were. And that theology is not something that we do about an absent or inert reality. Uh, We can do other things that way, physics or sociology. You can study that group over there or that phenomenon in a laboratory setting. Uh, Theology is invariably something that occurs before the face of God. Uh, My favorite line is that, God is not summoned before reason. Reason is summoned before God uh, from his little book, Holiness. And it's just this reminder uh, that that brings responsibility, just as a a kid will behave when mom and dad are gone in a way that he won't when they're there. We can sometimes forget we're responsible to God in our theological work because we think of him as absent and aloof. On the other hand, it also brings remarkable promise. Uh, The fact that God is there and present is what gives us hope uh, as finite creatures and worse as fallen sinners. And so we have to think in terms of creatureliness and in terms of of the redemption of our sinful minds and hearts as God's promised provision to shine his light into our midst, to make us wise in Christ. Uh, and so forth. And so I, I think that would bring out another element and infuse what what Dave's describing there. Was In terms of when that phrase made its debut, could you maybe just, what was, what was the state of theology like? I mean, to Dave's description, was it, some, was it somewhere where that kind of, you know, in the name of theology, uh, these theologians are sort of just speaking into all these other fields haphazardly, or is that kind of where John was speaking into? Um, yeah, you could you could maybe say there's there's about two or three decades of buildup to him saying okay. that. Okay, 
And, and the, the earliest background to it would be the kind of education he himself received and other contemporaries of note would have received folks like Rowan Williams, for instance. Okay. Sarah Coakley, figures of, of senior importance of that generation. And they're reared in a, a context where what's called doctrinal criticism rules the day theologically. Okay. Where there's precious little sense that the classical resources of the church's theological tradition are a help, a lot of concern that they're a hindrance and that we ought to clean them up, or you might say skim them out, that we can get on with the the business of serving a modern church. And that only snowballs over the the, the couple decades following that. They're, They're notable figures, not just John, but also folks like Rowan Williams and others who would be protesting that in different ways as, as they became significant voices in their own right. But before that, you've got the rise of, of just a, a range of, of sort of plural approaches to theology, seeking to put it in conversation with other fields, theology and gender, theology and yeah. politics, theology and economics, theology and psychology, etc. And those are all important conversations to broker. And as Dave mentioned, John would protest that. But uh, there's a lot of, you might say, adolescent awkwardness as those conversations developed. And John would say that there was a lot of assumption that, that theologians were mature and had a voice theologically to bring to the table. And it's, it's preciously easy to sort of overstate that formation and to underrate the temptation to basically mimic other discourses. And I think John would say theologians tended to talk like sociologists and therapists, uh, and not necessarily the best ones. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, that's, that's a major concern of his. And he would, he would raise it polemically at times in review articles on this or that book or essay, uh, as well as in more manifesto-like pieces, such as theological theology. Yeah, the only the only other uh, uh, sort of points of contact uh, that I would add, points of context to add to that that Mike just said uh, so well, one, one would be, uh, I, I think that the term theological theology originated uh, with Gerhard Abeling, but then John seems to have picked it up in the book, God is the Mystery of the World by Eberhard Jungel. And one of the things that Jungel is trying to do in that book, and it's a very complicated book that kind of works with wheels within wheels. There's about 10 arguments that he's trying together to tie together into this master argument. And after wrestling with that book for 20 years or so, I'm still not entirely sure that he succeeds in tying all of them together. But one of those little arguments that fits into the big picture is the idea that God is interesting in his own right and not as an end to something else. So when Jungle talks about theological theology or that theology needs to be explicitly theological, that's the idea from Jungle is that God in modernity becomes an end towards some other thing. We want to talk about God because what we're really trying to do is get at this over here. Right. And Jungel tries to make the point that God is interesting. God just is interesting, sheerly, um, effusively interesting 
that idea of the presence of the triune God being before us as we worship, as we do theology, as we think, as we wrestle, as we live, that it means that God is interesting, just sheerly so. So I think that there's a resonance there um, with what John was trying to do. The other thing would be just to say that in John's own work, when this sort of comes up, it's when he's presenting his inaugural lecture at Oxford. He had moved from Toronto, where he was professor at Wycliffe College, which is a, a, a place where ordinance for the Church of Canada went through evangelicals mainly. And he had moved to the, the context of Oxford back to the UK after studying at Cambridge, spending a bit of time at Durham. He goes to Canada, he comes back. And I think there's a sense in which, it's piggybacking off of the comments that Mike made, coming back into a context where still doctrinal criticism and theological pluralism were the orders of the day in Christian theology. There's almost an apologetic edge to this paper called Theological Theology, where he's trying to say, it's almost a shot off the bow. I'm here now as uh, taking this prestigious chair at Oxford, this historic chair. And guess what? As a theologian, I intend to do theological work that talks about God. And so there is this, there's the whole background there of the other things that were going on. And John, in his own way, kind of picks up, a, off, picks up this language to say that uh, God is the theme for theological work. It's a cool. It's a cool piece. I mean, reading it in that sort of meta, it's a grand narrative of what was going on. It's a great essay. Speaking of to that sort of um, there being this sort of undifferentiated, you know, theologians going into different practices and and that sort of thing. It reminded me, you know, what I appreciate and I see in a ton of Webster's work, and I believe Michael quoted it in his in that essay on theological theology of uh, theologians needing to be sort of differentiated from that sort of pull to go do all of those kinds of things, be rooted in the word, and to speak to not only the word, but to people in that sort of theological sense. He, he says some of the effect of good theology demands good theologians, and it sort of presupposes not only a level of emotional maturity, but, of, but what Michael was saying, it sounds like spiritual maturity. Like it, it takes time for you to mature uh, into that, which one of the things I, I, I greatly, greatly appreciate about Webster. My, one of my last questions, and I, you guys have been really kind with your time, so I really appreciate it. One thing that I was struck by, and, and Dave, this is one of your essays on, on Jungle, and then there was a follow-up uh, next to that one on, on Webster on Bart, is Webster was someone who could really dive into a thinker to a theologian, know them sympathetically inside and out, and to be able to have minor to significant differences with them, but yet still traffic in them to some degree. Not one to sort of just like, I'm now, you're forever out. There's a sort of maturity there. I, I was wondering if, could you speak to that a little bit? Is that fair? Am I seeing that? Or how would you describe that? Well, maybe to answer the question, I would go back to one of the very first conversations I had with John in Aberdeen about the dissertation. And he said, which was on Jungle, correct? 
which w- it was on okay. Eberhard Hummel. I'm okay. only one of uh, two of John's doctoral students to have written on Eberhard Jungel. Okay. And John said, go read the corpus, go read yeah. everything you can. He had a box in his office uh, that I remember very vividly toting down the road in the rain down King street, about a mile to my flat and then copying all of it. And it was all, most of it was in German and my German was not very good and it's not good again. But during that brief period, when I was immersed in it, I was reading it fairly fluidly. And he said, just read, 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 read. It goes back to Mike's comment earlier on about the textual nature of doing theological work, reading, 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 and kind of getting in, getting into the world. And I, and I think that that was something that he certainly practiced himself in his early phase with Jungle and then later on with Bart is the need to just do the deep dive and read consistently, read well. Don't rush to judgments. Think about the, try to, to, to sort of think behind the text a little bit. You, you know, it's interesting that there, there are good practices that I, I think for, for theologians resonate with how we ought to be reading scripture. I mean, we certainly ought to be reading behind the text and thinking about these sort of contextual issues and the history and whatnot, but then thinking along and trying to be fair and charitable um, with the author um, in front of us as well. And I deeply appreciate that. I mean, I think with, I, I would actually, this is not a correction to you, Jake, but just to kind of go back to you, the way you framed the question, I actually find John to be fairly critical consistently of a lot of the things that Eberhard Jungle is doing, but he reads him charitably. Yeah. He tries to be fair and judicious um, in his in his way of dealing with some of those sharper edges in Jungle's thought. And I think that that presents a pretty good model for how to read um, how to read a, another theologian. Absolutely. So I, I, I find there's a good there's some practices that come out of just the observation that one can make as he works through Jungle and Bard. OK, guys, thank you so much. If uh, for folks listening, if say they're they're just learning about Webster today, including the companion, where else are you going to send someone first? You know, what, what are what is is there a shallow end to Webster and, and what would you recommend to folks? Hey, I'll I'll say before Mike jumps in because he can't say this, but I will. The uh, <laughs> reader, the reader that Mike uh, edited for T and T Clark. Okay. Um, and you, Mike, is it just called John a uh, John Webster reader? Is that what it's called? T and T Clark reader and John Webster. T and T Clark reader and John Webster. So it's an annotated reader, and Mike's got a lot of introductory comments on major texts and some of the things going on. That's a great, great place to start to kind of get a sense for um, the the whole thing. And then I'll just chime in before I pass it over to Mike and say that his little book um, on holiness, yeah. um, which is one of many, that just a little book, it came out of some lectures that he did in Texas back in the day. It's just delightful. It's one that I keep on going back to and just finding just a ton of stuff um, there. Uh, it's a great one. Mike? Yeah, well, I would I would definitely say uh, Holiness continues to be my favorite book of Webster's. 
Uh, it's the one I've taught through the most with students and recommended the most widely. Uh, it's not his most scholastic or technical tone. It's got at moments a much more homiletical, uh, even sort of preachy kind of uh, urgency to it. Uh, it models some basic concerns, but it is brief enough and accessible enough to, to hopefully not intimidate, but to hook folks. And you do really catch some of his basic concerns about doing theology, about who God is, about church, and about the Christian life. And so it's, it's a pretty wide-ranging sketch. And I, I would agree with Dave, if you're going to read one book of his, that's a nice little roughly 100-page paperback to grab hold of. The reader gives you 10 essays and, and, you know, short sketches from across the corpus. That's hopefully useful for folks who want to go a little further, but I'd start with holiness. Awesome. Awesome. You guys have been very kind with your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much and all the luck in the world on the book. Thanks, Jake.